Borderlines, Ley Lines, and Fallen Angels, Episode 2. We travelled northwards, past the tell of Megiddo, the biblical Armageddon, with its circular altar to Baal. Under normal circumstances, one could only look at the temple at a distance, but again, because of the intifada, the place was deserted. We clambered down the great circular platform that was Baal's Holy of Holies. It was here that it was said that the two twin ley lines dubbed the Apollo and Athena lines by Paul Broadhurst and Hamish Miller, flowed down from Ireland through Cornwall's St Michael's Mount and the Lizard Peninsula, down through Europe to this very place. We doused the lines, the power was strong. It was strange to think that here beneath our feet in this parched land where lizards scuttled amongst the rocks, there flowed the same life force that permeated the cold granite of home. On the south coast of Cornwall, not far from St Michael's Mount, to this very day one can see the solitary tower of Pengersit Castle, still standing proud amongst the chalets and the holiday homes on the slopes above Sands. Legends cling to a place like this, like mist clings to a moor, and at the heart of these tales stands the shadowy figures of Lord and Lady Pengersic. A number of tales of Lord Pengersic have entered into Cornish folklore. This one was recorded by Robert Hunt in the 19th century. The story begins with the first Lord Pengersic. He was an ambitious man who, thinking only of the strength of his family line, plotted to wed his son against his wishes to an elderly maiden of the rich and influential Godolphin family. Unsurprisingly, to both her shame and sorrow, the young Pengersic spurned the old dame's advances, so off she goes to the witch of Fradham, who was skilled in the brewing of love potions. But not even the most potent brew could turn the young man's heart so some say to scorn the young lad, she married the old man, his father. Now the witch of Fradham had a beautiful daughter by the name of Bitha. Bitha was also skilled in the arts and by fair means or foul ingratiated herself within the Pengersic household in order to aid her mother's sorcery. But as is so often the way with such stories, the young Bitha fell for the dashing young Pengersic. The old stepdame was incandescent with rage. Her lust now transformed to hatred. She wove a tale that it was the young Pengersic who entertained a violent passion for her and that she was in fear of her life. She persuaded the old lord to hire a gang of ruffians to spirit him away into a life of slavery. 
The young Pengersik, however, got wind of the plot and made his escape. The young Pengersik had many adventures in many lands, though it was in Palestine where he settled for longest, and there he acquired both an even greater knowledge of the magical arts than the Witch of Fradham, and also the hand of a beautiful eastern princess. Whether it was by the whisperings of his familiar spirit or the shimmering within his scrying glass, the young Pengersik heard of his father's passing, so off he travelled back to Cornwall with his mysterious Saracen lady to take possession of his fortune. On his return, he was not surprised to find both Bitha and the stepdame consumed by the machinations of their own evil ways. The stepdame, now a hermit in her chambers, having assumed the appearance of a toad, and Bitha, alone on the moors, having taken on the likeness of a snake. The new Pengersiks rarely left the castle. They were both feared and respected in the neighbourhood. They were rich in purse and fair in their ways, but there was a strangeness about them that hung over the tower like a dark cloud. It was said that on dark nights he would chant his incantations to the crashing waves and the billowing winds. The heady scent of perfumed smokes drifted from his rooms around the castle grounds. Sometimes, even though the wind and the rain lashed down, the servants would huddle in the courtyard to escape the sight and the sound of the spirits as they flew about the castle. But when all seemed as if it could get no wilder, the Lady Pengersik would strike upon her harp. Her song was of the gentle summer breeze. Although her harp and song were no louder than a bird, they seemed to fill the skies. It was said that when she played, the very spirits themselves would slide down the moonbeams onto the sparkling waves and there softly echo her song. At the touch of her strings, the storms round the castle would abate and by daybreak all would be well once again. As her serpent fingers danced across the strings, they told of the mysteries of the ancient Ophidian sect in the Holy Land to which she had once been a priestess. One day, a swarthy stranger appeared from across the sea and took up residence in nearby Market Dew in the shadow of St Michael's Mount. Despite the inquiries of the most persistent gossips, no one could ascertain either his name nor his purpose. At his arrival, Lord and Lady Pengersik seemed distant and preoccupied and seemed to be spending even more time than usual locked away in their tower. Then, one night, there was a great blaze that seemed to illuminate the land for miles around. Pengersik Castle was on fire. The flames seemed to reach to the very heavens. By the morning, only the hollow walls remained. The Pengersiks, their books and treasures, and the mysterious stranger were all gone, though the old folk swear at the height of the flames they saw Lord and Lady Pengersik on their fiery Arab stallions, passing through the air like lightning and disappearing over St Michael's Mount, then southeast, across the sea into the night.
We travelled onwards past the horns of Hattan where the dehydrated and heat-exhausted crusaders fell to Salahaddin. Across the great flat plain of the Golan Heights where there in the distance on the borders of Lebanon, the land of the Phoenicians, stood the towering mass of Mount Hermon. At the foot of the mountain we stopped at the verdant valley of Banyas, a place once sacred to Pan. It was here that the well of Al-Qadir, the immortal ever-wandering green saint of the Sufi, was said to rise. Its sacred waters were said to confer a gift or curse of immortality. Al-Qadir, Pan, Elijah and St George all were sacred to this place. Four faces of the ancient body of the green man reflected in these sacred waters and looking out into the hearts of Muslim, pagans, Jews and Christians alike. A rare vision of unity in a fragmented world. My lover, pray draw close to listen and rest a while but for an hour. By the well whose waters glisten neath the vine of Kidir's bower. We left Banyas and ascended the mountain road to Nimrud on the slopes of Mount Hermon. It was here, in ancient times, apocryphal legend told that, consumed with desire for the daughters of men, dark angels once descended to earth at this place. It was here that first the watcher's eye met eye. To these still lonely exiles from Eden, they brought the gifts of science, agriculture and magic. Some have speculated that these watchers were civilising visitors from other planets, some that they were the old gods returning from a previous epoch, and others that they were personifications of the slumbering, innate faculties awakened within the nascent soul of humanity. Whoever they were, their shadows remain as unseen presences throughout the mystical traditions of the West. Peter Gray, publisher, author, an occultist. Readers of my Lucifer Princaps will further know that these divine messengers are the returning mighty dead as birds of prey in Carnonite religion. The epiphanies of lightning and storm, particularly for the Phoenicians. And when finally othered, gain the heraldry of the goat and serpent from Leviticus and Genesis to become the chimeric devil or devils of the Middle Ages. If we are looking for a leader of these angels, it is provided by Halal ben Shahar of Isaiah, whom the Vulgate names as Lucifer, and who combines the Asael and Shemyaza figures of the Enoch books. Why is this important? Because the angels both predate and postdate the Bible. We have an ecology of spirits under the designation angel from the Greek angelos, messenger. A multiplicity rather than a bound hegemony under a tyrant. A multitude of possibilities. This is a philosophy, a theology and a path of practice. 
The particular angels that I am interested in are the fallen angels. And what are they like? The answer is terrifyingly simple. They are identical to the rest of the celestial hierarchy in appearance, powers and knowledge. Identical. They aren't garbed in black robes, sporting inverted pentagrams. The demonic iconography of bat wings and horns was later used to exteriorise the inner conflict of a riven church and finally used to evoke the anti-hero angel of the social and sexual renegotiation of the Romantic period. The heresy of the angel cults first flourished in the deuterocanonical or intertestamental period, where they gained names, powers and agency in a visionary or broadly speaking Enochic tradition, which would be a fundament, which would be fundamental in the formation of the Western esoteric tradition. When we read the Book of the Watchers, it is absolutely clear that the one difference between the divine and the fallen angels is that the fallen angels want to teach us. Such teaching spirits are a consistent presence in human history, from the Abkalu to the Daemon to the Holy Guardian Angel. We can either have the unknowable God of Job, controlled by the ministers of the Sacre Droite, or an open channel of revelation through the Sacre Gauche, reading the signs in the sublunar world through which the angels make themselves known to us. The angels are either bound forces, functions and expressions of unity, or independent entities. If they are independent, and the evidence is that they are, then theology has a problem. The emanationist Neoplatonic hierarchy is rendered a nonsense. Angolology ultimately problematizes the common understood topology of the Bible, of Christ, and the omnipotence of Yahweh. Angels are the ghost DNA preserved across cultures and time, occulted but intact, singing all the while for those who choose to listen. The issue is not even what the angels teach, it is who they teach. The fallen angel tradition is in essence democratic, available to be read by the people and not exclusively by the priest class. Even worse, if we turn to Genesis 6.2, there is a suggestion of a tradition. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. It is the woman who, through their sexuality, gained divine lovers and fathered heroic offspring. These texts are propaganda for Yahweh, so the offspring of the angels are characterised as blood drinkers, destroyers and so forth. The women are the harlots whom Revelation 17.5 confides are the daughters of Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. A phrase that must be read through the lens of the fallen angel tradition if the deeper layers of its meaning are to become apparent. And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. 
and the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose wives from amongst the children of men and beget us children. And Semyaza, who was their leader, said unto them, I fear you will not indeed agree to do this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath and bind ourselves by mutual imprecation not to abandon this plan but to do this thing. Then swear they all together and bound themselves by mutual imprecation upon it. And there were in all two hundred who descended in the days of Jared on the summit of Mount Hermon. And they called it Mount Hermon because they had sworn and bound themselves by mutual implication upon it. And these are the names of their leaders, Semyaza, their leader, Arachibah, Ramiel, Kokabiel, Tamiel, Ramiel, Danel, Ezequiel, Baraquiel, Azael, Amaros, Batarad, Ananel, Zaquiel, Samsapiel, Satarad, Turel, Jomael, Sariel. These are the chiefs of ten. And all the others together with them took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one. And they began to go into them and defile themselves with them. And they taught them the charms of enchantments and the cutting of roots, and made them acquainted with plants. And they became pregnant, and they bare great giants, whose height was three thousand ells, who consumed all the acquisitions of men. And when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. And they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish, and to devour one another's flesh, and to drink blood. And then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. And Azazel taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates and made known unto them the metals of the earth and the art for working them and bracelets and ornaments and the use of antinomy and the beautifying of the eyelids and all kinds of costly stones and colouring tinctures and there arose much godlessness and they committed fornication and they were led astray and they became corrupt in their ways. Semyaza taught enchantments and root cuttings. Armaros, the resolving of enchantments. Baraquiel taught astrology. Kokabiel, the constellations. Ezequiel, the knowledge of the clouds. Araquiel, the signs of the earth. Sansael, the signs of the sun and Sariel the course of the moon and as men perished they cried and their cries went up to heaven But gold cannot be alloyed with lead without corrupting its splendour. 
For lead to be elevated, it must transmute its inherent nature. On Mount Hermon, the well-intentioned watchers' work wreaked havoc, and for their Promethean act, they were banished. In ancient Palestine, the heavenly light of Gnosis was dimmed to become the dark Saturnian glow of the medieval church. In the plains below, it seems as if Jews and Muslims alike have turned from their desert vision and elevated their petty tribal battles to a simulacra of spiritual aspiration. But here on Mount Hermon, it seemed as if I stood between the worlds, caught in a tension between heaven and earth. I picked up a handful of gravel from the land, once marked by watchers' footfall, and put it in my pocket. This arid land seemed to be whispering that in the nature of our fall itself, there may lay the seeds of our redemption. With the seven handfuls of the earth brought unto me by Azrael, I shall grant man a greater form, and with my breath the image fill. Cut up.
This was a Quarry Studio production, made in a secret location in a quarry somewhere in West Cornwall. Words, music, sounds and production, Steve Patterson. Additional voices, Peter Gray. Engineering, editing, production and additional voice, Dave Wisdom. Additional voice, website design and brainwaves, Lisa Wisdom. If you want to support us, you can do so on patreon.com slash antiquarian adventures in meta reality. For further information, look us up on stevepattersonantiquarian.com. We look forward to joining you for further antiquarian Antiquarian adventures in meta reality. We are, 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 we